0: Hello and welcome back to Radio Headspace and a huge thank you for all of you for tuning in so far. I'm Georgie Okel, and I am here with you every single week talking about how the mind works and what the mind is capable of. So if you heard episode one of Radio Headspace, you will have heard me talking to the brilliant Dr. Claudia Aguirre all about why we make excuses and why we procrastinate when it comes to getting started with with our resolutions. And throughout January, we are taking on our anti-excuse project on Headspace. We'll have a bit more on that later on this podcast. But for now, Dr. Claudia is back with us, I'm delighted to say, to talk about something else that we tend to put off, ignore, find excuses not to do, and that is the act of giving. Being more charitable and altruistic is, is something we all often resolve to do and to do more of, but it's something that we don't quite get around to most of the time. So Dr. Claudia is here with me today to talk about why that is, if being charitable could make us happier, and if we can ever really be genuinely selfless in our charitable endeavors. So hey, Claudia. Hey, Georgie. Welcome back. Thank you. Uh, so what leads us
1: to act more charitably in the first place? Well, I guess there are countless motivators behind giving, um, and helping others comes in many forms. So, you know, say you're giving money to a charity Or helping a stranger dig his car out of the snow. You know, it's deep snow in the East Coast, I hear. Um, Or even helping someone or a group of people that we've never even met on the other side of the planet. Now, why do we do this? There's different reasons. And if you ask someone on the street, I'm sure you'll get many different reasons. So, for example, sometimes it's a deep-rooted empathy, you know, a concern for others. Sometimes it's a desire for public recognition, you know, (laughs) which is kind of ironic. Like, I want my name on that. (laughs) <laughs> I guess another motivator I guess we often associate with
0: charity is those distressing adverts we see on TV you know you turn the TV on they play for a long time and it's whether it's starving children in a part of the world we've never been to or puppies in you know a mm. pound and we, how do we so because we're not puppy but they are so sad and they're so moving when we give to those causes is it because we really feel for those animals or those children,
1: or is it to ease our own distress a little bit, our own guilt, maybe? It's funny. You know, advertisers know that we have a soft spot. Yeah. And uh, they definitely engage consumers with emotional advertising. And it works. You know, if there's a sad puppy on TV, I will probably donate some money. (laughs) Um, But we're still figuring out exactly how this works in the brain. For example, there's an, uh, a study that was published in the Journal of Neuroscience, and they showed empirical support for this theory, you know, that human altruism derives from basically how quickly we want to understand others, um, our readiness to do this, to understand someone's thoughts or, or their emotions, um, their desires. And it's our natural tendency to consider other people's mental states that is really predicting these kinds of I guess, altruistic behavior, Um, not empathetic concern per se. Uh, And it's funny because there's an area of the brain called the dorsomedial prefrontal cortex. Good name. Yeah, perfect. (laughs) One of my favorites. And uh, this is a brain region that's consistently involved in understanding others' mental states. So, like, if I'm trying to guess what you're thinking, that area would light up. Okay. And uh, this area um, also is involved in... Charity. So whether it's a monetary donation or time spent helping others, like volunteering. And this area lights up. So what it's showing is a link between our motivation of wanting to help and the fact that we're trying to understand from a cognitive point of view what that other person is thinking or feeling. Okay. Yeah. And, and you know, it's interesting, like, it doesn't necessarily say that empathy doesn't play a role. Just because we're thinking about thinking, you know, this cognition, uh, doesn't mean that our emotions aren't involved. So to your point, empathy also changes our behavior. And maybe it is to alleviate our own distress from watching torture, you know, um, or feeling good for supporting a cause or to ease sufferings of others. Basically, there isn't a one size fits all. You know, sorry, neuromarketers. Okay, so there's like different things that play to different people and play to different parts of our brain.
0: So here's a slightly controversial question then that just might just separate who responds to different things. Is there a difference between the way that men and women are likely to to respond to these kind of Mm. adverts or how, you know, they're more likely to give in a different way?
1: Yeah, I really like sex differences. Um, It's, you know, part of my research. And there's so much stuff that is different between men and women, which is probably why a lot of people write books about it. But anyway, um, yes, there are sex differences. And there's a neurobiologist who's quite famous in the field of empathy and love, etc. His name is Paul Zack, And he he's written articles and books about neurobi- neurobiology of trust, etc. And he's really focused on oxytocin. Now, he found something interesting across his studies that women will release more of this hormone called oxytocin, which has been dubbed the love hormone in popular media, and um, and that they release more when they watch something sad on TV, say. So in immediately there's a difference between men and women, um, and maybe that affects how they give. But from what we know, they feel differently already. They're a little bit more sympathetic, you know, okay. towards that. And uh, speaking of sex differences, testosterone, which is the male hormone, testosterone can actually inhibit the action of oxytocin. And in the end, that can actually decrease generosity, so that's interesting is, you know, male, female, oxytocin, testosterone, um, definitely there seems to be some something there. And, um, and he also found, and this is kind of, you know, I guess you can say controversial, if you squirt some oxytocin into someone's nose, um, you are boosting their levels of oxytocin, this love hormone and when you and this is done with a nasal spray so if you spray some oxytocin up someone's nose and make them watch some sad adverts or psas they're actually more likely to donate um than those that did not receive the hormone so i mean this is like um, more than 50% they're likely to donate which is interesting because that shows that this is a very powerful hormone and and here's the scary part. You can kind of manipulate, you know, someone's emotions because yeah. you just, here, take this, squirt it up your nose, you'll donate more. So they actually did a study to prove
0: that. They put this hormone in a bottle and sprayed it out of people's noses. Yes,
1: yes. And and, they would... and you and you gave more if you got the hormone. So we should just make loads of <laughs> balls of this stuff. <laughs> Why isn't someone bottling it up? Um yeah. I'm I'm sure Paul Zad would love that, but you know, there's there's some ethical concerns there. Yeah. The man who bottled kindness though. Like that's what he'd be called forever. It, yeah. Something for you
0: to think about if you're listening, <laughs> Paul Zack Um <laughs> and so I wanna go back to something that you and I have, have kind of talked about throughout the week. Uh the idea that altruism could be something that maybe we're born with that, that you know, we can't really make excuses that we're about, you know, about not giving to charity when maybe it's a gene that we're, in fact, born with or not born with?
1: This is kind of an interesting area because the participants of these studies are babies. Okay, why, why are we doing scientific <laughs> studies on babies? Babies. Well, uh, think about, you know, the average baby. They haven't really been culturally influenced. They don't have jobs. They don't really have friends. Um, they don't read books. <laughs> so they're just, you know, pretty new when it comes to culture. Uh, But anyway, studies show that in human babies, this altruistic behavior towards someone totally stranger um, is actually seen as early as a toddler age. So three and a half years of age, um, they're actually showing these compassionate behaviors towards someone they've never seen, which is really interesting. And very new genetics research also shows that having, let me put it this way, version A – versus version B of a particular gene could predispose someone towards altruism. So what's this gene? Um, It's called Arginine Vasopressin Receptor 1A. Of course it is. Um, AVPR 1A. So if you have version A of this gene versus version B, then basically having one variant of this gene over another can cause us to be more altruistic. So maybe there is a genetic predisposition, yeah, towards altruism. But, you know, again, this is still really new genetic research. That's exciting, though,
0: that you could be born, you know, being more likely to give and be charitable. Yeah, it it
1: kind of makes you think about the people in the past, in history, that have been kind, you know, like the Mother Teresas of the world. Yeah, maybe she's born with it. Then maybe Mother we should Teresa. genetically map
0: her out. Yeah, with and then get everyone some of that nasal spray. Yeah. <laughs> um, so does, regardless of whether we're born with it or not, does giving make us feel good? Does it make people happy? Even if we get nothing in return, no plaques, no nothing.
1: Yeah, I, I personally feel good when I give. And um, I think psychologists seem to think that, yes, giving does boost our happiness. There's studies using fMRI, you know, the stuff that images your brain activity. Mm-hmm. And um, and this kind of evidence shows that when you give money to charity, it can activate similar brain regions as those that are activated by pleasure and reward. So in particular, a, a brain region called a ventral striatum, this is activated during reward anticipation, so waiting for that next High, if you call it, whether that high comes from chocolate, which is yummy, or you know, or drugs, or sex, or whatever, is another, a powerful motiv- motivator of behavior. Um, and so, these experiments show that there's there's sort of a relationship, you know, between spending money on others and how that activates this region, and that can actually lead to higher happiness than even spending money on yourself. Wow. So, shopping for others. Activates this area, makes you happier even more than if you're shopping for yourself. Wow, who knew? Mm. And you know, when we talk about giving, I'm not just talking about physical giving, so I can give you 20 bucks and feel good. But I'm also. If that talk- makes you feel good, by <laughs> all means,
0: give me 20 bucks.
1: <laughs> I just might after this conversation. But I'm also talking about giving in a symbolic sense. So, say I give you a massage, that'll actually make me feel just as good. Um. <laughs> hopefully, it makes you feel good, too. Yeah, I'll, I will also take the massage, or right. the $20. <laughs> and what's happening here is, again, it's that oxytocin, you know, that stuff that gets bottled up into the nasal sprays. Uh, this oxytocin is the hormone that gets um, released when you not only give a massage— but when you also receive it, and this to me is super fascinating. Um, I've talked about this several times already in the past, the neurobiology of trust. Oh, sorry, the neurobiology of touch, which is actually linked to the neurobiology of trust. Okay. The more you trust someone, the more likely you are to release this hormone. When you touch someone, you're actually building trust. Um, so really interesting. And so this to me is reciprocity embodied.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We really do need to bottle this stuff. Yes. This this oxytocin hormone. So giving then it it makes us happy, which is brilliant news. Do happy people give more? Does this kind of come
1: full circle? It does seem so. So there's evidence from more social psychology and it shows that when we're more Positive. So when we're in a happier state, whatever that is, we're actually more likely to give money or even volunteer our time. You know, again, it's that definition of giving. Um, and these kinds of studies date back even to the '70s, um, where people were asked to, or where people were exposed to a gift. You know, they found money on the street, or they were giving a cookie, and after feeling good for a little bit, they were actually more likely to give in return. And when we're talking about Giving and donating to charity. We're essentially
0: talking about in a lot of cases, giving money. So then how does that relate to how much we make? Is it like I mean, is it like rich people are giving more
1: and poorer people can afford to give less? It's funny how we're talking about this now because we just said you want your name on a plaque. Walk down, you know, Fifth Avenue or New York or L.A. or any Chicago, any major city, you know, those big banks, those big museums, university buildings, there's usually someone's name on it. Yeah. And they're usually wealthy. Yes. (laughs) So um, what would you guess? That the more money we have, the more we give? Yeah, that would make sense to me. It actually would make sense. But here's the thing. It's actually the opposite Okay. Um, I know. I found this actually pretty interesting, too. So let's take the U.S., for example. The wealthiest Americans donate 1.3% of their income. Right. The poorest, more, less than one3 I mean, I would say it's
0: like around the same percentage, like it's less money, but it's about the same percentage of what they make.
1: They actually donate three times more. Whoa! Okay. Yeah, so three percent. Um, so this uh, this data comes from the Chronicle of Philanthropy, and they used IRS data, and they found that Americans give, on average, about three percent of their income to charity. But there's a big difference between the rich and the poor. Now, get this: the wealthiest Americans, and we're not talking billionaires here, just people that earned more than two hundred thousand dollars a year they reduced the share of income that they gave to charity by 5%. Wow. Whereas the people that earned less than $100,000 a year chipped in 5% more. When is this? This is actually from 2006 to 2012, which is the period of recession. Okay, so that's how they reacted. During recession, when lower-income individuals were hit probably the hardest, they gave 5% more, whereas the wealthy people gave less. So why is there such a difference between socioeconomic
0: groups and their charity?
1: I was really surprised by all this information, too. Um, Luckily, there are some researchers that are looking at this. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, Paul Piff. He's a psychologist at Berkeley. And um, okay, let me just say straight up that the research here is controversial. I like it. Let's get into it. Okay, so he's basically suggesting that um, the less money you have, you know, you're in a lower socioeconomic group that these, the people in these groups tend to have um, a greater commitment or they value equality more. Uh, they have greater feelings of compassion. They give more. Um, they might even have more trust towards strangers, more helping behavior towards somebody in distress. Oh. And his studies also showed that, now don't kill the messenger <laughs> here, wealthier people are more unethical than those in lower socioeconomic groups. Wow. He really really went in with that research. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But here's the interesting thing. So even though the wealthy were maybe not as compassionate, when you show them a video, you know, like a sad video on child poverty, the compassion of the wealthier group began to rise. And these groups' willingness to help others became almost identical. Okay. Yeah. So there's hope. So ultimately, there's there's something
0: that could be sparked in all of us to kind of drive.
1: Watching sad videos. Yes. (laughs) Or the nasal spray.
0: Yeah. They seem to be the two answers, (laughs) either spraying someone with a a giving hormone or watching a sad advert.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, there's more research on this. So, again, another Berkeley professor, not really sure why Berkeley focuses on this area. But... um, Professor Keltner, he's he's also suggesting the same thing, that the less money you have, the more compassionate or altruistic you are. And uh, and in particular, he was looking at the vagus nerve, which is a very large nerve that comes out of your brain and goes down through your body. And um, what he showed is that those people that were poorer, you know, in lower socioeconomic groups, they activated this vagus nerve much more than wealthier people. Uh-huh. So... You know, there's differences even in nerve activation when it comes to compassion. And and he's kind of suggesting that maybe there's a sort of compassion deficit in the wealthy. Yeah. But okay, let's just leave it at that. And nothing's cut and dry. There's definitely still a lot of research to be done. But it is interesting and fascinating to understand how, you know, there's science that validates the fact that the less money you have, the more you give. And the more you have, the less you give. It is so interesting to get
0: into, you know, all these questions of why people give, who is giving, and I suppose what causes they are giving to. So how close to home are we, you know, making these donations? Is it more likely to be people in our family or in our community, or should we all Mm -hmm. be going for the, the greater good, the most worthwhile international organization, you know, responding to
1: an international disaster with the
0: greatest need?
1: Well, I recently read an article. Um, it came out in twenty thirteen in the Atlantic. And of fifty of the largest individual gifts to public charities in twenty twelve, you would think that you know maybe half went to um, universities and and sort of organizations that might be pushing towards the elite of the, yeah. of the community, right? Um, but actually, 34 of the 50 went to these educational institutions. Whoa. The vast majority of them were colleges, universities. We're talking Ivy Leagues, you know, not public schools, um, Harvard, Columbia, universities. um other things like museums and art organizations like the Metropolitan Museum of Art, they received nine of these major gifts, and the remaining donations were spread among medical facilities and even fashionable charities like Central Park Conservancy, for example. Not a single one of them went to a social service organization or to a charity that basically serves the poor and the dispossessed.
0: What? So out of these 50 largest charitable gifts, I just want to get this clear, Yeah, in America... Uh in two thousand and twelve, not one goes to a a social service group. They're all
1: yeah. schools
0: and museums and galleries <laughs> and, wow, interesting huh yeah, fast I would have no i would never have guessed that in a million years. I mean, I think talking about all of this and hearing about all this and learning about it, it certainly for me makes me wanna give more and especially in terms of you know like happier people give and like giving makes people happier. It makes me want to get involved and get on board. But what is
1: enough? How can I be sure that I'm giving enough? Enough is such a beautiful word. (laughs) I like it. Um, But I also think that enough has a different meaning for everybody. Yeah. So basically, you'll have to look into your own you know, soul and say, how much is enough for me? Uh, but here's the nice thing about it. You know, after we've talked about how giving makes us feel happier, how it fuels happiness and how it lends to more um, sort of altruistic behaviors in the future, and also how we don't have to be super wealthy to give. So I think that knowing this, understanding this can actually push people more. Or I should say push more people to that altruistic camp, you know, knowing that it makes you feel happy, that you don't need that tons of money to do it, that maybe it's just enough for you, uh, that that's going to push more and more people into the altruistic camp without the nasal sprays. (laughs) I want to get in
0: the altruistic camp
1: without the nasal sprays. Let's sign up. Uh, Let's do it. Claudia, thank you so much.
0: And, of course, to hear more from Dr. Claudia, you should check out some of her brilliant blog posts over at headspace.com slash blog. And you can get in touch with us here at radio at com. We'd also love to know how you're all getting on with the anti-excuse project that we're doing right across Headspace. So for the rest of the month, we are going to be running a challenge over on our Instagram page. Just tag a photo that you feel best represents how you're getting on with banishing those excuses. So this could be anything from a photo of you finding the time to meditate, a picture of that book you kept meaning to read over last year or that home-cooked meal you promised your friend or if you just doing something kind for a colleague whatever excuses that you are banishing this year we want to see how you're getting on so just tag us in the photo using the hashtag anti-excuse we'll be posting a selection of our favorites over on facebook and our instagram pages and don't forget you can keep up to date with the anti-excuse project on headspace.com slash blog or check us out on twitter at get underscore headspace i think that's about it for now We will see you, as always, on the next episode of Radio Headspace.